0: Cheers, everyone. How you doing? Today is, I don't know, it's a Wednesday. It's April 20th. You're watching Dangerous Thoughts on Unsafe Space. Here with me, Carter Laren. I'm your host for this series. We air it every Wednesday evening, or mostly, most Wednesday evenings anyway, and it's focused on the application of uh, rational philosophy, so the epistemology of reason, which is the art of non-contradictory identification the ethics of individualism and the metaphysics of reality basically um and our goal here is really to you know not to be too grand but our goal is to really help usher in a new enlightenment uh you know enlightenment 2.0 bigger better and on the blockchain um it you know it was winston churchill that said if you're going through hell keep going and right now culturally we are we're going through hell um, so, as Rome falls, we want to take the successful ideas from the Enlightenment—the ones that maybe weren't implemented consistently—weed out the contradictions, and and then take those ideas and march forward with blueprints for for a better version of Western civilization, maybe one less prone to psychological and philosophical dysfunction, which is rampant mostly on the left these days. Anyway, um, wait—is it? Oh, it is. I did say April 20th, and I didn't realize it was 420. Someone just said in chat, Beverly said in chat, it is 420. Uh, This might not be the kind of show where you want to be high during it, but maybe your IQ is much higher than mine, and you can be high and just fine. So if that's the case, light them up. Uh, On today's show, we're going to talk about, it's kind of all one big blob. Sometimes we do segments on this show. Today is going to be all kind of one big blob, but we're going to talk about Taylor Lorenz, Saul Alinsky, and the Foundation for Rational Ethics. Um, so first, if you're new to Unsafe Space, welcome. Uh, in addition to this show, which is Dangerous Thoughts, we have a lot of different series. Earlier today, we actually aired um, a new one that's that people are liking called Rebel Civics, hosted by Keith Bissett. It's um, more educational about society and government. Uh, we also have a, a series called 451 Degrees, hosted by Alex Micelli. Um, She talks about censorship predominantly in the arts. We have a show called Great Reset, hosted by Comics Division. Uh, you may recognize if you're in the, uh, the comics world. Um, that show is free to everyone, unless you're a member of the World Economic Forum. And we have a show on Mondays, which is called Narrative Dissonance, which is live. It's a panel of journalists, and we talk about... Uh, the mainstream news, but what they're getting wrong, basically. And Fridays, we have a, uh, a new version of Token Minority Report hosted by our very own producer, Beverly. And I think she's looking for her own producer. She's not satisfied with the intern that's helping her now. So if you want to help out, uh, let her know. Also, before we start, please think of someone you haven't shared unsafe space content with. Go do that now. Uh, if you haven't already, make sure you're subscribed on either Utreon, Odyssey, Rumble, YouTube, um, and complete you know, consider heading over to unsayspace.com to support us if you'd like. You can watch everything there. We don't censor ourselves on our own website. And uh, you can, you know, unload some of that worthless fiat and get into our Discord server and get your name in the credits and get a grenade mug. We're not allowed to sell grenades, but mugs. Okay. <laughs> Shout out to everyone in chat. Welcome. Light them if you got them. Let's roll. So let's talk about Taylor Lorenz. Taylor is a columnist at the Washington, currently at the Washington Post. She's been elsewhere, uh, focused on technology. And you might recognize her from her recent MSNBC interview. Let's let's play that. This was I don't know maybe a month ago.
1: To remove every single social tie, I had severe PTSD from this. I I contemplated suicide. It got really bad. You feel like any little piece of information that gets out on you will be used by the worst people on the internet to destroy your life.
0: Now, uh, we're gonna we'll keep playing it in just a moment, but uh, just notice uh, a couple of things. First of all, she's talking about uh, basically doxing and online uh, mobs that are coming after her and, and apparently family members. So let's keep going.
1: So isolating and terrifying it's horrifying i'm so sorry (laughs) it's overwhelming it's really hard
0: so getting a little bit of uh sympathy from the person interviewing her there on msnbc now a lot of people some of some of us a lot of people i don't think i did this although i something i might do uh, a lot of people mocked and or dismissed her for her her PTSD claim and her crying which you know i could say looks performative but maybe that's harsh <clears throat> now why why did people mock and dismiss her well <clears throat> look some people are just callous that's true there are callous people in the world um, and in fairness, some of the things that were said to her online were truly vicious. They're truly vicious things. According to her, they shared photos of family members and children. Um, you know, she said in, in the interview, they'll threaten children. Um, so this, this can be actually traumatic. It's maybe not the kind of PTSD that you get from watching your buddy's guts spill out on the battlefield, but you know, in real life, Um, mobs are dangerous. If we think about evolutionarily, um, the consequences of, of mass social rejection or attack by your peers or a whole bunch of people, it can mean literal death, you know, uh, evolutionarily it has often meant literal death. You can't reason with a mob. Uh, I'm reminded of, I know most of you probably seen men in black. Do you remember there's a scene where Will Smith is sitting there with, um, Tommy Lee Jones and, uh, he's asking about why don't we just tell people about this and of the aliens. And Will Smith says, people are smart. And Tommy Lee Jones said, a person is smart. People are dumb, panicky, panicky, dangerous animals. And you know it. Uh, and he's right. I mean, mobs are something to be feared. Um, as a reminder, because we are going to talk about the Bible a little bit today. As a reminder, uh, it was a mob that chose to free Barabbas and crucify Jesus, which even if you're not Christian and I'm not, uh, it's clear that the mob inverted values. It's an inversion of values uh, that happens often when the mob is is given power. So, so, of course, online mobs like she was facing aren't always just, you know, they're not as existentially problematic, right? They're they're just talk, right? But humans didn't evolve online. So the emotional response may not actually be all that different from facing down a mob in real life. So it's it's it might be reasonable to be traumatized to some extent by an online mob. Uh especially, you know, those of you who've, who've experienced them, uh, I'm sure can attest to that. However, however, not everyone who mocked uh or dismissed Taylor, not all of us did it out of callousness some people saw her as a fake victim. Not that she wasn't traumatized, not that the mob wasn't going after her for real, or like that that wasn't a real thing, not that she made it up, but that as a member of the leftist press, she was only upset because it happened to her, and that she was probably really willing to support cancel culture for other people, and that she wasn't actually opposed to doxing or the the behavior that was happening on principle but she was only opposed to it because she was the victim and people probably suspected i imagine many of us suspected that she was using her victim status to propagate a political narrative on msnbc painting the left as innocent victims and people opposed to the left as the irrational crazy mean-spirited oppressors rather than uh maybe a more accurate representation, which is, Hey, this is something both sides engage in. In fact, the left is typically much worse because they have institutional power. Let's all stop doing this. That wasn't her message. So in other words, I think people saw her and they thought to themselves and maybe they didn't know, but they probably had this feeling that I think she's performing victim and I think she's doing it dishonestly. Right. Um, and of course, that's a typical kind of borderline personality disorder thing to do, but I don't know, you know, who knows? She could be otherwise psychologically healthy. I don't know. We're, I don't, we can't diagnose her. But there is that, that triangle between uh, a victim, oppressor and rescuer that they are often borderlines operate in. And this might've been her, you know, naming the right as the oppressor, um, being the victim, performing victim and looking for people to rescue. Um, and of course, she's just up there. What she did in um, the way she did it was was a way to deepen that that mentality of us versus them, that divide. She's adding to that divisiveness. It's the very Manichaean. And she's, of course, placing all of the blame on her political enemies here. Right. It's It's the crazy conservatives who are the mean ones. And I suspect that a lot of people smelled hypocrisy there or at least something disingenuous, which is why they denied her the sympathy that she was. Inviting, uh, when she went on MSNBC, sympathy that she might have otherwise been due had she not uh, done it in the way that she she did it. So anyway, that was that was Taylor Lorenz. That was her experience. That was her just a few weeks ago. So here we are, just a few weeks later, and out comes. Out comes this article. I'll put it up on the screen for you. Although I have, because I'm old, I, of course, have a printout. Uh, but let's see. Where is this article? I have too many tabs. I can't believe I can't even find this. This is this bad. Here it is. This article in the Washington Post come out came out. Now, I just the main thing I want to point out, I'll read the headline here. Meet the woman behind libs of TikTok, secretly fueling the rights outrage machine. Meet the woman. Um the byline here. <clears throat> let me see if I can read this name. Taylor Lorenz. I've heard of her before. Interesting. Let's read what Taylor had to say. I'm just going to read from from here. On March 8th, Twitter a Twitter account called Libs of TikTok posted a video of a woman teaching sex education to children in Kentucky. That's an interesting way to frame it. <coughs> Calling the woman in the video a predator. I don't remember I don't know which video this is, but most of the videos that Libs of TikTok posts are like teaching crazy aberrant sexual behavior to you know kids way too young but okay next evening this is the characterization thank you taylor uh the eve the next evening the same clip was featured on laura ingram's fox news program prompting the host to ask when did our public schools any schools become what are essentially grooming centers for gender identity radicals when indeed laura So uh, Libs of TikTok reports a steady stream of TikTok videos, reposts, sorry, a steady stream of TikTok videos and social media posts primarily from LGBTQ plus people, often including incendiary framing designed to generate outrage. I mean, the framing isn't just kind of pointing stuff out, but okay. Videos shared from the account quickly find their way to the most influential names in right wing media. The account has emerged as a powerful force on the Internet shaping right-wing media impacting anti-lgbtq legislation she's talking about the florida bill uh and influencing millions by posting viral videos aimed at inciting outrage among the right okay so so far just another leftist writing some slanted um uh, kind of misrepresenting reality but writing writing from a slant um it by the way this doesn't say opinion just to be clear this is not an opinion piece uh, this is news. So I'm glad that she's <clears throat> does her best to be objective. The anonymous account's impact is deep and far-reaching. Its content is amplified by high-profile media figures, politicians, and right-wing influencers. Its tweets reach millions with influence spreading far beyond its more than 648,000 Twitter followers. Libs of TikTok has become an agenda setter in the right-wing online discourse, and the content it surfaces shows a direct correlation with the recent push in legislation and rhetoric directly targeting the LGBTQ plus community. By the way, this legislation is not in any way targeting that community. It's targeting um, the radical uh, political agenda of some members of that community and, and their, quote, allies. Quote, Libs of TikTok is basically acting as a wire service for the broad, broader right wing media ecosystem, said Ari Drennan, LGBTQ program director for Media Matters, the Progressive Media Watchdog Group. Now, by the way, if you'll notice, he he characterizes that Libs of TikTok as a broader a wire service for the broader right right wing media ecosystem. What does this wire service consist of? it consists entirely of taking left wing videos by actual leftists and posting them on another platform it's a it cross posts so it it amplifies it's a wire service for the right wing by being a wire service for the left wing <clears throat> uh it's been shaping public policy in a real way and affecting teachers' ability to feel safe in their classrooms. Well, we wouldn't want to hurt anyone's feelings. Okay. The account has been promoted by po- podcast host Joe Rogan, which, cue this noise. That's right, Joe Rogan. Uh, and it's been featured in the New York Post, the Federalist, the post millennial. And a slew of other right-wing news sites. Meghan McCain has retweeted it. (gasps) This next sentence blows me away. The beginning, ready? The online influencer Glenn Greenwald has amplified it to his 1.8 million Twitter followers while calling himself the account's godfather. Now, Jesus Christ. Glenn Greenwald. First of all, and I think it was in mid '90s. He founded a law firm. He's a lawyer. He was a lawyer first. He founded a law firm to uh, fight for First Amendment rights. And then, then the guy broke one of the biggest news stories at at least this century. I mean, nine eleven was bigger, but he broke Edward Snowden. He's one of the reasons that, um, what was it? The Guardian got a Pulitzer. He got the George Polk Award in journalism. The guy's a journalist. Not an online influencer. Dishonest. I mean, really? Who the fuck are you, Taylor? You're not a journalist. If Glenn Greenwald is an online influencer... You're a Twitter user. Jesus Christ. That's just no shame. Okay. Last Thursday, the woman behind the account appeared anonymously on Tucker Carlson's show to complain about being temporarily suspended for violating Twitter's community guidelines. By the way, there's a story there because they didn't really tell her what she had violated. Basically, she just reposts content. Uh, Fox News often creates news packages around the content that libs of TikTok has surfaced. Yeah. Yeah, because... (laughs) Libs of TikTok is showing you what they do. Um, showing you, you know, giving you a, a real look in inside, inside the left. The role, this is a quote, the role I've seen this account playing is finding new characters for right-wing propaganda, said Jillian Brandstetter, a media strategist for the ACLU. It's relying on the endless stream of content from TikTok and the internet to cast any individual trans person as a new villain in their story. No, no, it's relying on crazy people, almost all of whom are personality disordered, pushing radical, crazy, harmful agendas on their TikTok accounts publicly and openly, hoping for attention. And Libs of TikTok gives them the attention that they sought. Throughout its increasingly popular posts, and despite numerous... Don't worry, I'm not going to read this whole article. Uh, Despite numerous media appearances, the account has remained anonymous. But the identity of the operator of Libs of TikTok is traceable through a complex online history and revealed someone who has been plugged into right-wing discourse for two years and is now helping to drive it. She goes on to name the person i don't know if i should name her or not she's been named enough at this point uh so it's not like you know she's been doxxed but her name's chaya she goes on to talk about chaya she goes on to talk about chaya being a right-wing person trying a bunch of different twitter accounts that that didn't take off talks about chaya being at the january 6th insurrection um she had a actually i'm gonna just read this one because it's kind of funny by early last March, she pivoted to a parody account titled Houseplant POTUS, pretending to tweet as if she was a houseplant living with President Biden. She revamped her avatar to look like a small shrub with Biden's face on the leaves. At that point in time, she also claimed to be proudly Orthodox Jewish living in Brooklyn and working in real estate in her Twitter bio. So anyway, she 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 goes through and she, she doxes this this woman. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> I could read a couple other quotes, but I don't know if they're they're worth it. Um, this Drennan person says, it feels like they're single-handedly taking us back a decade in terms of the public discourse around LGBTQ rights. I th- I think it's the crazy people with multicolored hair grooming children that's taking your cause back a decade, but I don't think it's the Twitter account that reposts. Now, this article admits here that... that that um, that Chaya has quote taken steps to obscure her identity. Okay, so you know she's trying to remain anonymous. She's taken steps to obscure her identity. Um, and let's just read this part. When a reporter called the phone number registered to her real estate profile, this is after they did some work. Ready? Uh, a woman, the woman answered. Who answered? Hung up the phone after the reporter identified herself as calling from the Washington Post. A woman at the address listed to try his name in Los Angeles declined to identify herself. on Monday night, a tweet from Glenn Greenwald confirmed that the house was visited that was visited belongs to her family. so she visited her family's house to go talk to this person. okay the popularity of libs of tiktok comes at a time when far right communities across the internet have begun doxing school officials and calling for their execution i don't i don't think that's a mainstream thing maybe there's a person on twitter who's probably been banned who's been calling for execution of people but uh so doxing's a problem she says okay uh And then just the last thing I want to point out, she just again, just a dishonest thing. She misquotes. These people, she said, she's talking about uh, Chaya who runs the account. These people, she said, referring to the members of the LGBT plus community, some of them are literally evil and grooming kids and should not be in schools and should not be teachers. She was not referring to members of the LGBTQ plus community. She was referring to activists on the left. So anyway, a dishonest trash heap. But the most important thing about this is crying lady crying lady, doxed, doxed the Libs of Twit TikTok account owner. So it turns out if you were suspicious of her sincerity, you were right. You were right. Cue the gaslighting apparatus to emphatically tell us all that it wasn't doxing and conservatives are stupid, 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 stupid unhinged snowflakes, which might be a little bit of projection. Uh, Not that the left has ever done that, but uh, articles like this then came out uh, shortly thereafter. Let's see, where's this one? This is a Rolling Stone piece. Taylor Lorenz wrote about libs of TikTok and conservatives won't shut up about it. Yeah, yeah, that's their problem because she wrote about libs of TikTok, that's, you know, that's the only issue they had. Is she said, "Hey, I don't like clips of TikTok." Damn, conservatives. I'm gonna read part of this. I'm not gonna read this whole article. This article is embarrassingly bad. Uh, I don't. I'm. I i do not even want to say who wrote it. I. I don't want to. It's. It's rude to say the name of this person because it's really poorly written. <laughs> when a well-known reporter on the internet culture beat writes about a viral right-wing social media account, what's the proper response? Well, if you're a conservative on the internet, the best course of action is to get really upset and let everyone on Twitter know just how you're feeling. That, by the way, is the lamest paragraph ever written as an intro to a Rolling Stone article. Okay, um, that's the method. A special segment of Twitter deployed Monday upon learning of Washington Post columnist Taylor Lorenz's plans to publish a story about the willy popular and much aligned libs of TikTok. Now, I the willy the willy thing, I had to look this up. I, I mean, willy as an adjective is obsolete. I'm not sure. I think meant they think this person meant willfully, but no one uses like the Oxford English Dictionary officially declares it like massively obsolete. I don't know who used, but okay. So just awkward writing. Uh, an openly bigoted and homophobic social media account. Not true, but okay. Libs of TikTok is a favorite among terminally online conservatives. Okay, blah, blah, blah. The important thing about this article is that they, they, they're reframing Lorenz's doxing as, quote, just due diligence reporting. It's just due diligence. She's just doing due diligence. And they say, well, you know, there was some information that was already released that, quote, any savvy internet user could piece together to construct probable doxing. So their argument is, hey, there was probably enough information to maybe have docs previously available if you were internet savvy. Therefore, this isn't doxing. So the only thing that counts as doxing is when it's impossible to get the information and you magically get it. That's doxing. But if it takes some work and some savvy and it's not really publicly known, but there's a way to get it, that's not doxing. Here's a way. There's a way to get it. So it's not doxing. That's how that works. Um, Talks about pearl clutching by conservatives, which is a beautiful projection. Um, Anything else interesting about this article? Yeah, there's this, they pretend that this is necessary. This person says, but there's a particular urgency and public interest to unmasking TikTok. Why? Why? The fact that it's influential doesn't, like, who's behind it doesn't really matter. Why is there an urgency to this? So you can get some pitchforks out and harass this person? Yes, that's the urgency. Um. The fear of being, and then they mock the lives of the TikTok person, Chaya. The fear of being outed on to an international audience was enough to drive the account's operator into hiding, claiming on Twitter that they are, quote, currently holed up in a safe location. Well, Taylor had PTSD, so uh, that's not that outrageous. And of course, at the end, the odd thing that they end this piece with is Lorenz, meanwhile, seems absolutely unfazed by the response to her piece, which published early Tuesday morning. All right, well, She was pretty upset the other day. Uh, Now she's unfazed. I don't smell any hypocrisy to you guys. So let's, we're going to launch into some stuff now. I'm not going to read any more news articles. Let's take a realistic look at the situation we're in here. Um, And what I mean by that is let's take a look at the nature of the people we are surrounded by or at least the people that are influencing culture on a mass scale. They are, there's two groups, right? There's the people that are intentionally demolishing Rome, the barbarians at the gate here. And then there's, there's a whole slew of people who are enabling them, either wittingly enabling them or, or not. Now, uh, on, on this show, we've talked about the interplay between psychology and philosophy, uh, which I kind of re- refer to as a, a generational dance, sort of between these two things. Um, you know, psychological dysfunction um, gives rise to uh, demand for ways to rationalize that dysfunction uh, with bad philosophy, and of course, that means bad philosophy really means disconnected from reality because psychological dysfunction requires disconnection from reality. Um, so, so that that philosophy, uh, you know, the the demand, the market meets the demand that philosophy is invented. That new philosophy provides nutrients for an increased amount of psychological dysfunction, which then creates a market for further disconnected reasoning, further dysfunctional philosophy. If we recall, if we recall Jonathan Haidt, I don't know if, uh, it's been a while, I know we have a lot of people who maybe weren't with this on this channel, you know, a year and a half or two years ago when we first talked about this, but um, there's a social psychologist from NYU's Stern Business School called Jonathan Haidt, and he, he's written a few books, but one of his books was called The Righteous Mind, and in this book, he presented a metaphor for the cognitive relationship between our emotioning uh emotion capability and our reasoning apparatus in our minds and this metaphor uh was the rider and the elephant um and and the way he described it was this and and again he's talking about your cognitive faculties here he's saying well Your emotional brain is like this elephant. Uh, It's big. It's very powerful. It can move you around a lot. Um, And your rational mind, or the rational, the part of your mind that can reason is like this rider sitting on top of the elephant. And we imagine that most of the time, we imagine that the rider is driving the elephant. Right, like we're we're behaving rationally, moving around, blah 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 blah. That's what's happening. Um, but he says actually, what's happening quite often is that the elephant is rampaging, and the rider is simply rationalizing the direction that the elephant is moving, simply using uh, its cognitive ability to explain away. Um and rationalize why the elephant is correct in moving the direction it's moving. Rather than controlling the elephant, it's justifying the elephant. Now, um, by the way, hello to people in chat. I see a bunch of people I recognize. G-Man, Greg the Baritone, Richard Petz. It is true that our motivations fundamentally as humans are emotional motivations, right? The reason that you think in the first place is that you care to think, right? Something you first care, something matters to you, right? So um, even if it's just something as simple as like, I would like to keep breathing, right? Like you feel a way about that. Um, and and then you harness your reasoning capacity to achieve whatever it is that matters to you. So, you know, what's, if it is breathing, right? You're sitting on the ocean floor, you've got an oxygen tank with you, you're breathing. If you don't actually care, if you don't feel one way or another about suffocating, you might not even think to check your oxygen tank. Right. But if you do care, if, if life is important to you, you care about continuing to breathe. That's an important thing. You might set your watch to alarm you. You might, you know, just check periodically. You might have a buddy bother you to check. You pay very close attention to your oxygen tank. Um, so that you can survive. So to, to deny that emotion plays uh, a motivational role um, would be irrational, right? Um, to deny the presence and importance of emotion would be completely irrational because remember, you know, reason is not just deduction. Reason starts with looking out at reality. It starts with induction. It starts with looking at the world. And when you look out at the world, you, you know, or when you look inward at your own self, you notice immediately, Oh, I have emotions. They matter. Like, yes. Yes, they do. You're an emotional creature. Um, so so motivations for, for many of us, uh, well, motivations are all ultimately emotional. They give rise to an impulse within us to act. So that's all true. That's all true. Now, at the same time, Reason, and I mean the full spectrum of reason, the full bouquet, induction and deduction, integration. Reason is our only means of policing those emotional impulses that we get. They're the, it's the only means that we have of checking whether our mental state, our mental model of the world, our desire to act a certain way, our emotional relationship to that world actually corresponds with what's really going on, with, with reality. The only way that we can police that is through reason. Reason is what separates us from animals. Um, It allows us to take a long-term view of our life, right? Not just live in the moment constantly like animals, but to really really take a long, long long-term decades planning, right? And it allows us to act on this long-term view. And to to act on that long-term view, we have to be able to act contrary to our immediate impulses. So in the parlance of this rider-elephant analogy, yes, we have an elephant. Yes, it's prone to rampage. Yes, most of the time, most people are probably using their rider to rationalize the elephant, or at least in many cases. I don't know if it's most of the time. But clearly, they're not doing that all the time. Otherwise, we would live like animals and just justify it. But we don't we don't live like animals we do create things we do behave rationally in many ways not as much as i wish we all did but but we do in many ways we can't survive without doing that so so that's that's the rider elephant analogy and i think for most of us when we hear uh, when we hear the rider elephant analogy it's a sobering reminder of the cognitive pitfalls that we all face daily. I mean, that's, that's what it meant to me, right? Um, you know, psychologically responsible people, uh, they look at that analogy and they, I think they, they derive, or at least I did. And I assume most of you did. you They derive a motivation to be continuously diligent in managing their rider. Right, they look at that and they go, "Oh, this is a risk. I need to get better and better at detecting when my rider is rationalizing my rampaging element. I need to learn how to manage that rider better. I need to recommit constantly to living consciously, living a conscious life. And that analogy, that that uh, that metaphor, whatever that that might inspire you to do more introspection. It might inspire you to focus on emotional awareness. It might inspire you to go to therapy. It might inspire you to do." To do mindfulness, um, I had a friend recently recommend Sam Harris's waking up, uh, app for meditation. And I'm not really a hippie meditation kind of guy, which is how I always viewed meditation. But, um, it's 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 really interesting because he approaches it from this perspective of, look, your brain is your, he doesn't say this explicitly, but your mind is your primary means of survival. You got to understand how it works. And his mindfulness is about understanding how your brain is functioning, how your mind works, what consciousness is so that you can better control the elephant. Actually, he doesn't say that either, but that's one of the purposes. So you can detect what's going on. You can detect that you're rationalizing. You can see the impulse and not act on it. That's one of the purposes. Now, it doesn't mean that we're all going to succeed always when we we do this. No one's ever going to be 100% elephant-driven or 100% rider-driven. But it does mean that we can, if we make an effort and we prioritize this, we can be more rational than we are now. We can, beam, we can choose to try and be more rational. And it will make a big difference in your life, whether you're 80-20 rational or 20-80 rational. Those are, those are very different. You're not perfect in either one, but the outcomes are very different. So all other things being equal, you know, the extent to which our rider drives the elephant rather than just justifies the elephant's movement is the extent to which we can be said to be a rational person. Right. Um, and the extent to which other people should even bother taking us seriously, right? You don't have to take irrational people seriously. Um, <clears throat> maybe a little TMI personal anecdote, but you know, one of my, we all have psychological pitfalls. And one of mine, uh, one of my weaknesses psychologically is, um, is kind of a, an, a low level anxiety about like, maybe I'm not prepared enough. Maybe I didn't read enough. I didn't think about this enough. I don't know enough. I'm not ready to act. It, it inhibits my actions sometimes because I'm, I'm too worried about, uh, not being enough, not being ready. You know, I hate doing these shows. Like, I mean, I love talking about this stuff with you guys, but one of the things I hate doing about these shows is I'm always like, oh my God, have I thought through every case? And of course I haven't, right? Um, And I haven't spent enough time because my standards are like infinite amount of time would would be enough, right? Um, But the way that my, my family, specifically my wife, my daughter is getting old enough to start doing it now, how they react to that when I'm in like that anxious funk, they laugh at me, which I know sounds bad but it's they do it in this loving way and they do it in a way that reminds me that i'm being ridiculous i can't be taken seriously when i'm in this funk of like "Ah, i can't act i'm I'm ridiculous right and it's that it's that reflection of my ridiculousness that reminds me like oh i'm letting my elephant who's feeling verklempt control my behavior and i need to just let that go and, for example, do the show, even though my notes aren't as extensive as I would like and I don't have all the references I want and I didn't think through this and that and the other thing. Um, so it is, you know, so th- that's the goal, to be able to kind of recognize that and, and 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 move towards being more rational um, and driving that elephant, not just rationalizing it. So one of those, I think one of the most impactful and important things that we can do with our lives is to accept the responsibility for who we let drive. And that's what being responsible for your own life ultimately is. You're accepting the responsibility for who's driving that elephant. Now, we, we might assume that this, What I just said, this reaction that I just had to it, how I interpreted this, we might assume that this is kind of how everyone naturally responds to hearing this rider elephant metaphor. Um, Because most of us are decent people. We kind of assume like, yeah, it makes you want to be more responsible. And this kind of a metaphor is not, I mean, the rider elephant is new, but this story is kind of old. I mean, there's a. Socrates in Phaedrus, Socrates presents an allegory of a chariot with two winged horses, which is kind of similar, not exact, but kind of similar. Um, so like this, this idea that there are these conflicting uh, elements, the rational and irrational um, that we need to manage is is old. Um, but to my horror. And maybe this won't shock some of you, but it sometimes I'm naive. It shocked me. I recently realized that not everyone reacts to hearing this metaphor in the same way. Many, many people do. I mean, I, I double, after I realized what I'm about to say, I, I double checked with some friends and they were like, yeah, that's how I react to it. I'm like, okay, they, they reacted the same way that I would expect, but not everyone does. It turns out if you are motivated by evil or perhaps just like you have purposely, purposefully unchecked emotional indulgence. You're emotionally indulgent and you don't care, uh, which I think is a form of evil. Uh, But if that's your motivation, then you are willing to use this metaphor not as a motivation to better yourself, but as an excuse to descend into the monstrous and irrational. And here's how you do it. You interpret this metaphor in a different way. Instead of using it introspectively saying, oh, what does this mean for me? What should I do to be better, to ride, you know, to control my elephant? You can instead focus it exclusively externally. You can look for a speck in your brother's eye, right, rather than the log in your own eye. Yeah, I'm quoting Matthew now. Look at me. (laughs) Two biblical references already from the atheist. But you can do that. You You can focus externally. And you can say, well, everyone's writer is, is rationalizing all the time anyway. That's how it works. Everyone's just a rampaging elephant with riders rationalizing. So if you make an argument that makes me uncomfortable or if you cite facts that hurt my feelings or bother me in any way, I can just dismiss them. They're irrelevant. All that's irrelevant. I don't even need to take them seriously because, after all, that's just your rider rationalizing your elephant. It's no different than my rider rationalizing my elephant. And it's an approach that that makes truth relative, or you know, treats truth as if it's relative. Um, it tells other people that their cogent arguments that are based on facts and reality are no different than what I feel to be true, or what I want to be true. Right, both of which I just prop up with the homeopathic sophistry of my writer's justifications. So instead of becoming more resp- responsible for my words and my deeds. What I can do if i'm if I'm this kind of person who's just intentionally emotionally indulgent, what I can do uh, is just let go, let go of responsibility. instead of becoming more responsible, instead of double and triple checking my rider, instead of practicing how to wrest control from the elephant. Instead of learning how to recognize when I'm rationalizing, instead of becoming more self-aware and more conscious, I can become less self-aware, less conscious. I can use this metaphor to justify a complete abdication of responsibility to police my own beliefs, thoughts, and behaviors. And, And this is a kind of psychological dysfunction and morally corrupt interpretation um, that I think is, is prevalent, and, and, it's, and it's, it's, it's a corrupt interpretation of this elephant, elephant rider metaphor. I don't know what Jonathan Haidt meant, how people meant to uh, interpret it. It's been a while since I read the book, but I'm pretty sure he didn't mean for you to then run with your irrational craziness because you read about this and went, you know, run around with glee, going woohoo! I don't have to justify anything because no one ever, no one ever justifies anything. It's all just rationalization. But I don't think this is uncommon. I don't think this reaction is uncommon, which is scary. This kind of disposition has has poisoned our culture. It's ubiquitous. Um, it's part of this psychological philosophical dance, right? Um, it's kind of a, a microcosm of it. You can within one person, you can kind of see that dance. Um, and I think there's two categories of, of strategies that these toxic psychologies use to rationalize away their behavior. One is they adopt explicitly convoluted ethical systems and that's mostly on the left at least in modern times. Um the other thing they have to do is uh they'll exploit ambiguities in religion. And that I see that on the right and the left both. Um because you know, religion requires interpretation. Uh, you know, there's, I mean, there's ample evidence in history that a belief in a deity is not sufficient for ethical behavior. Now the atheists win the 20th century for killing the most people in the name of their ideology. Absolutely horrible. But all the prior centuries, it was the, it was religious motivations. Um, right. And I, and so, and I think the high death count in the 20th century has more to do with technology than it was ideology. Although the ideology was evil, clearly, um, but a clear interpretation of religion is is needed, and if you're not willing to do that, and and if you look at the people who've clearly interpreted the the Enlightenment thinkers who clearly interpreted Christianity, for example, or or pre Enlightenment thinkers who who tried to use Christianity, uh, or or I'll say, provide interpretations of Christianity that were Christianity that were more. Um, rigorous with respect to maintaining some respect for reason. Um, You see, you know, Thomas Aquinas, you see John Locke, you see them derive uh, a lot of individual rights and, and ethics based on this interpretation. Right. Um, And you need, I think you need that kind of an interpretation. Otherwise people can, uh, interpret this You know, toxic psychologies can, can interpret it to justify abhorrent behavior and you need to be able to undercut those attempts by saying, here's an interpretation. Uh, but that's not my job to do. Cause I'm an atheist. So, uh, Christians, you guys can worry about that now. This is going to seem like a pivot, but it's not see this book. This book is called rules for radicals by Saul Alinsky. Now I never read this book. Uh, I still actually haven't read the book, <laughs> um, but I never read this book, um, but I picked it up yesterday because of this whole Taylor Lorenz thing and some other stuff that was going on. And I was like, what's, what is this book? Right. Um, and so uh, I did what's called an inspectional pre-read. So by the way, if you ever want to quickly get an idea of a book before reading it, you just, I read the. I read the prologue. So you read like the preface and prologue and introduction, that kind of stuff. And then I read the first few paragraphs and last few paragraphs of every chapter. Uh, And then like some sporadic spots. And that gives you an idea of what the book is. It doesn't, you know, you still have to read the book, but it's fast and you can kind of get an idea. So I did that with this. Plus I read one chapter. I read a chapter um, called Of Means and Ends, as in ends justifying the means. Uh, So I read that chapter. And, uh, and by the way, so the reason, the reason I wanted to read this or start looking at this is I wanted to see how bad, uh, how bad it was because this is very influential. I mean, I'm just going to read an excerpt from the back cover. Alinsky, this is from Chicago sometimes Alinsky's techniques and teachings influenced generations of community and labor organizers, including the church based group, hiring a young Barack Obama to work in Chicago's South side in the 1980s. Alinsky impressed a young Hillary Clinton who was growing up in Park Ridge at the time. Alinsky was director of the industrial areas foundation in Chicago. I think she actually wrote a dissertation or some kind of paper on Alinsky. Um, and, th- and this book is from 1971, so it's older than I am, which is hard to do. Um, so this has been around for a long time. Lots of leftists and, and like mainstream leftists, like Clinton's are main, Obama's mainstream. They, they were, they are influenced. The organizations were influenced. This is, this is everywhere. This is everywhere on the left. If not being read explicitly, the ideas have been read. The people, and it's, it, it's, it's actually a handbook for kind of, um creating organizers so a lot of the left is organized around these principles so i wanted to see how bad was the philosophy in this book um and i thought this this book is a good example to see how bad philosophy actually weaves its way into culture and politics like this is a guy who's not a philosopher he was an activist but you'll see he takes some bad philosophy weaves it into activism and suddenly you've got an entire party the democratic party Implementing really, really abhorrent philosophy. So, <laughs> ExoFathom says, "Spoiler alert! It's bad." Yeah, yeah. So, I'm going to read some excerpts. Please bear with me. It's worth it's worth hearing this. It, I, I promise. I'm going to read first from the prologue. Just a sentence. All values and factors are relative, fluid, and changing. It will be possible to get get it together. He's talking about, I guess that was a phrase in the 70s. He's talking about getting it together. It will only be possible to get it all together relatively, only relatively. Okay. Sounds like a little bit moral relativism. Let's skip ahead to the chapter called Of Means. And ends. To say that corrupt means corrupt the ends is to believe in the immaculate conception of ends and principles. The real arena is corrupt and bloody. Life is a corrupting process from the time a child learns to play his mother off against his father in the politics of when to go to bed he who fears corruption fears life now by the way i want to point out he doesn't mean feared he means avoids he means he who avoids corruption avoids life and you know that that will be clearer with context then he quotes some actual philosophy. He's going to quote Goethe, shit philosopher, but he's going to quote Goethe. The practical revolutionary will understand Goethe's, quote, conscience is the virtue of observers and not of agents of action, end quote. In action, one does not always enjoy the luxury of a decision that is consistent both with one's individual conscious, conscience and the good of mankind. The choice must always be for the latter. Well, I feel good about someone deciding what's good on for mankind and being willing to do anything, no matter how evil, to obtain those means or those ends. That's, that's nice, Saul. I'm now going to read you an anecdote because I think this anecdote really, really drives drives this home. You can understand the kind of person Saul Alinsky is and the kind of person he is triggering other people to be or encouraging, trying to, he's trying to cultivate this in other people. That's why he's writing the book. He had a whole institute like teaching this. So he's talking about an encounter that he had. He was negotiating with some company. And uh, he says, it turned out that there was a secret sympathizer with our side. So the secret sympathizer with the, the other side, he's negotiating against this guy. Here's, here's the traitor coming to him to help him out. And the guy uh, points to his briefcase and says, quote, in there is plenty of proof that so-and-so, a leader of the opposition, prefers boys to girls, end quote. I said, this is Alinsky, I said, Thanks, but forget it. I don't fight that way. I don't want to see it. Goodbye. He protested. But they just tried to hang you on that girl. They they tried to use his personal life against him. I replied, the fact that they fight that way doesn't mean I have to do it. To me, dragging a person's private life into the muck is loathsome and nauseous. He left. So I read that and I was like, oh, he does have some kind of morals. Mm." Then you have to read the next. This will burn. This will make your blood boil. His next sentences: so far, so noble, but, and he italifies, but, but, if I had been convinced that the only way we could win was to use it, then without any reservations, I would have used it. And one of his rules in here is like, well, you can kind of care about morals if you want, uh, but uh, only if there's other options that are just as good with that. Like, that's how he views it. So he would have used it. But what did he do? He played. He played on the guy. He on the guy's sense of morality. He pretended that it was an ethical consideration for him. I'm not going to do that. And then he says, "I would have, but I had other options, so that's why." I didn't. The tenth rule of ethics. I'm just going to read the tenth rule of ethics of means and ends is that you do what you can with what you have and clothe it with moral arguments. I only have two more to read. (sighs) Now he starts talking about using moral language to hide what you're doing. Moral rationalization is indispensable at all times of action, whether to justify the selection or the use of ends or means. Machiavelli's blindness to the necessity for moral clothing to all acts and motives he said politics has no relation to morals was his major weakness so Machiavelli said politics have no relation to morals we're outraged by that Alinsky says no he doesn't understand it does have a relation to morals morals are the clothing so you can get away with your stuff that's the relation and one last thing all effective actions require the passport of morality. So this is what your democratic and I use the big D democratic leaders are trained in. This is a morality that is I mean if you if you want to look at his relationship to, to for morality, first of all, it's descriptive. He has no proscriptive morality he, Uh, He goes on in this chapter talking about looking at how people have behaved and what they've gotten away with. And like, he just like, that's, that's morality. Like, well, they, they justified this. They justified that. It's all descriptive. It's completely relativistic. He's explicitly anti-principles and almost, I think almost worse is that he recognizes the practicality of clothing actions in moral language because he's literally duping people into thinking that. He's behaving morally. He's duping people into thinking that he's like them. He cares about ethics just like they do when, in fact, he does not care. So this is the playbook that the left has been operating from for over 50 years. And that's just part of one example. I mean, there's other there's other writings. There's other people. There's other playbooks. And, and there's more words in this particular book. I just read a few, just read a little bit. So that's what we have going. That's what they have. And, you know, and this isn't, I just, I I can't emphasize this enough. This is mainstream. This is not, I'm not, this is not a zine from some crazy leftist Berkeley group from the 60s. This is what mainstream people read. This is how mainstream organizations organize. That book. That's the cesspool we are living in. All right. Let's take a little detour. Um, I, it, It's related. We're going to talk about ethics for a moment. I'm, I'm not going to derive a bunch of ethics, but I am going to talk about the foundations of ethics. I often get asked... What's the basis for atheist ethics? I get that question a lot. Because um, I don't actually hang out with a lot of athe- atheists, right? So most of the people I hang out with are not atheists. And so uh, they're very curious about this. And on the one hand, I, I understand the question. If, if you look out at the world, the large percentage of atheists are state theists right, or outright Marxists. Um, and when they're not running around trying to smash anything that resembles a traditional value, uh, with their malevolent nihilism, they're sitting behind their keyboards, you know, pining away for an, an authoritarian dystopia, right? They're, they're pretty horrible. Or they're prodding people to form cancel mobs, right? Because their precious sensitivities were perturbed. Um... So I, so I get that. And also, look, many people who have religious convictions associate ethics with a set of rules or principles that are set down from an authority figure of some kind, right? So for for them, uh, ethics, I, I've noticed, I don't know if this is true for, for everyone, but ethics are often the reason for religion. I've seen um, plenty of people who were kind of, I don't know if they're non-believers, but didn't really care, didn't go to church, didn't care, wasn't part of their life, might have been kind of non-believers by default. They have kids and they and the question arises, oh, how am I going to teach my kids ethics? I don't really know. I learned my morals from church. So they go to church because they, they, like ethics is actually the motivations. They they know that they need some ethics. They know their kids need some ethics. They're not sure how to teach it and they know a place to go where and they kind of feel like, well, my ethics are okay. I learned it here. They 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 go to church for that reason. Um, so I understand that. So in some 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 sense, this question is is understandable to me. I understand why people ask about it. Um, you know, you look out at atheists, many of them are horrible. And you ask, do you guys even have ethics? Like, I, I understand that. Um, on the other hand, it's also kind of a convoluted question for me when someone says, what's the basics for atheist ethics? And I'm going to tell you why. And maybe this is a little bit, this is a little bit personal. I just spilled water all over the floor. Okay. Um, I've been an atheist for over 20 years. And my decision to become an atheist was based on a moral conviction. That's why this is a little bit of a convoluted question for me. Um, I'm going to drink some of this water before it spills more. I should learn how to... Poor. So this is a moral question for me. I, I became an atheist in my early 20s, but prior to that, I was getting up every morning at 5 in the morning and reading the Bible. Um, I still have my Bible. This is my Bible that I got up and read. The zipper's broken. It's a New King James Version. I got all these, look, I got all these old notes stuck in it. I basically put it on the shelf 20 years ago. I don't usually use it much. Um, I've got, you know, underlining and highlighting in my Bible, right? I would get up every morning with this. I even have, I even have this because I'm old. Prior to the internet, if you wanted a concordance, you had to go buy an old concordance, at a giant concordance that I would use bookmarks in the Greek and Hebrew. Ethics were very important to me. Emotionally, I've always been very focused on justice. So, um, without going into the entire story about my uh, conversion to atheism, it was ultimately a moral decision. It was, I was confronted with a conundrum morally. And it wasn't easy. And it wasn't a hedonistic decision. It wasn't like, I don't like having these ethics. I'll try atheism. It was the opposite of that. Um, And I had to make a choice. Um, And I had to decide whether I was committed to the truth as I saw it, no matter where it would take me, or I wasn't. Now, I know not everyone agrees with me, but that was the choice in my head. It was a commitment to truth. And it was that commitment to truth that led me to atheism. It, it wasn't convenient. It caused a divorce. It massively upset my life. It wasn't easy. And it was scary, by the way. Not just like I might be punished and go to hell, but it was scary because I didn't know what was on the other side of this. Like, well, uh-oh. What was going to happen to me ethically? There's a lot I like about this. So when someone says, um, I do have a drinking problem like Ted Stryker, by the way, Greg Baritone. Good. G-Man says King James Version. Oh, no. <laughs> it's the new King James Version. Um because old King James is just senile. Um, so uh, when someone says, look, what's what's the basis for atheist ethics? I I kind of view it as, as a malformed question when I hear it, because it's like a swimmer saying to me, if you don't swim, how do you measure fitness? Right? Or like Popeye asking me, if, like, if you don't eat spinach, what's your, how do you base your nutritional theories? It's like, well, I'm just not on spinach, dude. Right? Um <sighs> So, you know, one of the one of the reasons that I think it's 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 a convoluted question is atheism is the lack of a belief, right? All of you are atheists with respect to some gods. In fact, most gods, um, atheists just add one more god. So, it's a weird question because atheism isn't the foundation for an ethical system at all. Any more than an empty field is the foundation for a skyscraper. It's a nothing. It's a context, it's a landscape, it's a backdrop, it's a nothing. Atheists don't say there isn't a God, therefore murder is wrong, or therefore this is my ethical system. Like it doesn't, nothing follows from it. It's an, it's a void. Now, there does need to be a foundation for ethics, clearly. (laughs) And a bad foundation means you get bad ethics. So, if you're Hegel, if you're Marx, and you're looking at Hegel, <laughs> and you're looking at his social metaphysics, his Geist, his spirit, um, hey, you get some bad ethics, and eventually you end up with Stalin and the deaths of tens of millions of people. Bad foundation, right? Or maybe you maybe you start with the axiological uh, hedonism of, of Jeremy Bentham, and you end up with I don't know, nineteen sixties hedonistic. I don't know, I wasn't alive in the 60s, but it sounds fun if you're a hedonist. Um, maybe you end up with that. So that's one of the reasons that it's a little bit convoluted, is like it's atheism isn't a basis for anything, nor should it be, It can't be, it's a nothing. Um, but the other reason is that the question kind of presupposes that there's only one valid foundation for ethics which I might agree with, actually, and say is reality, but it, it also presupposes that that foundation is a belief in a deity. Um, And what's weird about it is sometimes it's a particular deity, which I kind of get, but sometimes it's not. So like, if a radical Muslim hears you that you don't believe in Allah, in his version of Allah, he might say, well, you're an infidel and you have no ethics at all, but you're not even human. You can't have ethics without my version of Allah. I kind of get that sort of like, they, like, okay, there's a source, there's a fountain head of Essex and you believe this is what that is. I don't drink from that fountain. Therefore I'm unethical, but sometimes, and this is actually more common. I've noticed that any deity is a satisfactory answer to someone. So long as it's something they just want. They just want me to say something and then they'd be happy. Um, and you can see this actually with uh we did a show a while ago with Julianne Davis, who's the act one of the actresses from I guess she was her her claim to fame was that she was in um eyes wide shut. And um she's nice. I mean she's she's a good, you know, I, I liked talking to her and we had some long conversations on the phone a few times. And um, I think she was one of the early ones to get canceled for not being a leftist in Hollywood. Um, but she was very uncomfortable with my atheism. And we did a show together. And 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 you can you can go watch the show. You can see she's she's very you've gotta believe in something. And she's emphatic. It's gotta be something. She didn't care what it was. Um and I don't I don't know, I don't know where that's coming from. Maybe it's the you know an expression of psychological uncertainty. I, I don't know. There's the kind of need to confirm your own conclusions that a belief is necessary. I, I don't know what it is. But the question we should be exploring here is not what's the basis for atheist ethics. That's a that's a dumb question because there is no like. Like I said, atheism is nothing, but, but given that reason is our only method, it is our only method for checking correspondence with reality. It's all we got. We're not omniscient. That's all we got. The only way we can check is reason. And given that our actions, good actions or bad actions or neutral actions, given that our actions take place in reality, and reasons are only method for checking reality correspondence. The question to ask is, what's the basis for a rational system of ethics? That's a question. And that's a good question. Um, I'm going to talk about that a little bit here. We're going to explore that question. And we're not going to drive an entire, I mean, I'll be here till tomorrow morning and probably still not be done. And I probably couldn't do it uh, on the fly. But I'm going to give a quick overview of the foundation here. Now, as a reminder, our knowledge starts by looking outward. It starts inductively, not deductively. So you can deduce completely false things if you start with the wrong premises. And so, if we're if we're trying to adopt a, a Reason, as our as our epistemology, we need to start with induction. We can't say, well, here's the principle. Let's derive stuff from it. Not how it works. So we can't start with the assumption that we even need ethics. We can't start with that. Or that ethics are important in any way. And this can kind of be a scary place to start because, you uh, <laughs> know, what if we decide we don't need ethics? Then what the hell, right? Uh, and... Just to ease your mind a little bit as we go through this, rest assured. There's plenty of historical evidence to suggest that, at the very least, we'll probably arrive at some variant of "murder is wrong" and that kind of stuff. Like, not all societies arrive at that, but most, and not all murders. Some societies, you know, have some exceptions, but a lot of them, and most of them, are opposed to murder in some way. Um, so. If we look out at the world, it seems to work out pretty empirically that we don't kill each other. So you you can breathe a sigh of relief. We probably won't end up concluding that there's no need for ethics and condoning murder. But we have to start from like, we don't know. We don't know. You gotta start. You gotta start from, I don't know. And with ethics, I think we have to start with... The purpose. What's the motivation behind ethics? What are we looking for? What problem are we trying to solve? And then if we can figure that out, then we might conclude that we need to, some kind of ethics. We have to develop some kind of ethical system. And we'll also have a starting point for discovering ethical principles because we'll know why we're doing this. Why the hell are we doing this? Right? Because one thing that atheists don't have is they can't say, well, I'm doing it because it's written in the book over here. They can't do that. Um, so if we talk about principles generally, the base, and, and I've done an entire show, I think, or most of a show on principles. Um, the basic reason we need principles in general is is that we lack omniscience, right? Because we're not omniscient, we need guiding principles for things. So it makes the complexity of life parsable. We can live, you know, the principles of engineering are needed if we want to build stuff. The principles of music are needed if we want to compose stuff. Like that's how things work. But unlike engineering or, or music, philosophy is is broad. It's the broadest that, you know, broadest subject there is. It encompasses the entirety of our existence. Um, philosophical statements are, are universal and they're broad. So if we're looking at, For principles to guide our actions broadly, which is what we're talking about with ethics. Like the question is, do we need principles to guide our actions broadly? And if so, why? Why do we want some way to guide our actions? And one way to look at this is can we imagine a case in which we don't need any principles to guide our actions broadly? We don't need any broad principles. Is there a case where we don't need any kind of principles? We can act. And do just fine with no principles. Because I think this case is the starting point. There is a case I can think of where we never need any principles, ever. And that's a case where we are taking no action. We're literally taking no action. Greg the Parentone says, if you're the last man on earth, nope. Nope still need principles, but that's close. Um, I'll explain why you still need ethics, even if you're the last man on earth. Um, But if you're not taking any action, you're literally taking no action, not just in the moment, but over the course of your entire life, you're never going to take any action. Then you don't need principles for action. You're not taking any. Now, of course, what happens to humans When they refuse to act at all, when they don't do anything, what happens to any living thing when it refuses to take action? What happens when a tiger doesn't move his muscles? He refuses to move or get up or a bird or a wolf or a lizard. What happens to anything? They die. Inaction is death. You can't not take action if you want to live. If you want to die, you don't need any guiding principles for your action. If your standard is death. You're not going to do anything. If your standard is. If you're not going to act. You don't need any principles. You're not acting. You'll die. You may care about that. So maybe you want to not die. Oh now you're going to have to act. Oh now you need principles for acting. Now interestingly here. Unless there's something wrong with them, animals actually can't do that. They can't not act. They can't instinctively, or they they can't betray their instincts. They can instinctively take action to live. They do. That's how they live instinctively. But they can't say, I'm going to take action contrary to living, contrary to my own life. And I want to make a caveat here because someone's going to bring it up. What about cases of animal altruism? There's cases, there's documented cases where they do this thing, and this requires a little bit of a nuanced view of animals, which I think is more, I think it's more accurate and correct view of an animal uh, and humans actually. But uh, animals are DNA replication machines, right? Richard Dawkins writes about this in the Selfish Gene. Animals are DNA replication machines they've evolved to maximize the propagation of uh, elements of their DNA. So when you look at it from that perspective, I think the altruistic action that we're seeing that appears to be altruistic that animals, that individual animals take, uh, you'll notice that it it inures to the benefit of the DNA. Um, So if you wanna be technically correct, I think you might say animals can't decide to act against the survival of their DNA or the propagation of their DNA. Like that's their in th- but it's instinct. It's instinct. And most of that involves their own individual life. Right. Um, but not, but I guess there are some cases where not only now you can induce an animal uh, to malfunction through some kind of trauma or whatever, but a healthy tiger, like a tiger, a tiger that's like normal sitting on the prairie or, or maybe we'll choose a lion. He can't just be like, fuck it. I'm going vegan. That gazelle made a really great argument. I'm not going to do that anymore. He can't do that. Right? Lion can't do that. They can't act against their own interest. So they don't need guiding principles. Because they're not choosing what to do. They're just acting on impulse. They only have the elephant. They don't have the rider. But humans, we can. We are unique in that we get to choose. Uh, And we can choose, if we want, to act in our own self-destruction. You can literally go weave a rope out of vines and then intentionally hang yourself with it. That's a thing you could do. Um, That's not something you see other apes doing. But humans can. And I kind of, you know, I don't like to use this word because I don't think it's actually a curse. But you can look at this kind of as a, there's a curse to free will. Which is not only can we choose whether we want to act in our own long-term self-interest for our own survival, but actually we must choose whether or not to. We don't get to live by instinct, right? Because if we live by instinct, we just die. Our, Our cognitive faculty is our means of survival. And that kind of becomes a curse in the sense that there's a burden of choice. So, you know, as we go about our days continuously in every moment we have a fundamental choice to make. Do we act in order to live? Is that is that how are is that a principle like it, it is is our standard life? Cuz any other action we take, if the standard's not life, if we're not moving towards life, we are moving towards death. No action is death in living things. Action contrary to life is clearly death. We don't have a stasis state right? Just, just de- deciding not to decide doesn't, you, time doesn't stop, right? So you're, that's an action. So we have to be choosing whether to live or not. Do I eat the delicious poison or not? There's a sound in the bushes. Do I devote mental energy to the sound in case it's a non-vegan lion? Or do I dismiss it or evade it? Cause it's too uncomfortable or difficult to think about and it's scary and I don't like it. Now there's also kind of a blessing to free will, um, because we can also decide what life means to us. There's survival, there's mere survival, but we can say, well, I want thriving, right? And thriving could be different for everyone. What does thriving mean to you? You might want to be a painter or an accountant or a parent, or you might want to speak seven languages and travel the globe or be a leader in your community, whatever thriving can have a specific personal meaning. But fundamentally, each potential action that you take is either in the direction of life, you're thriving, or it's not in that direction. And since we're not omniscient, we don't know how to move, because we don't know everything, we need principles that guide us to act in service of life, not death, our life. And since we're talking about philosophy and ethics, we can see that this is true universally. These need to apply universally. Everyone needs these principles. Not just you, not just me. And thriving might look different to each of us in some ways, but uh principles based on human life. Uh not by the way, not a numbers game of survival, right? You don't count up lives and be like, it's not a utilitarian thing. We're not we're talking about human as a human and individual. What does a human need as a human, right? We need principles that are based on human life. But based on that human life, based on the requirements of human life as such, life as a human being, not just survival, but I just like to be a human being. And this is the rational ethical standard. Life as a human being. Because that's what you are. As opposed to death. Because if you want death, you don't need reason or ethics or anything. Right? You just sit in the corner. It'll happen. Um... So ethical principles are only necessary if you're saying, how should I live as a human? Right. And not how should I die? <laughs> you don't, you don't need those. Um, now when we're exploring this question, we, we might ask, well, why isn't there any other standard, right? Why could why does the standard have to be human life and, and thriving? Uh, why couldn't it be to serve God or to serve the state as Hegel? Hegel would want it to be to serve the state. But Hegel's really bad. Well, both those purposes presuppose something. I mean, um, in the religious one, they obviously they presuppose a God with our, our best long-term interest in mind. Um, in Hegel's case, they presuppose that the state has our best long-term interest in mind, I guess. Um but neither but the, the other reason that there's a, this is kind of a scary standard to to think about is neither the will of a benevolent god nor the will of a theoretically benevolent state are directly and clearly perceivable you can look out at the world of reason and see how it works you can't directly perceive the will of a benevolent god or the will of a benevolent state generally i mean some people i know claim through revelation that they do but they're not directly perceivable so the standard always ends up being the standard that another man sets for you, either the person speaking for God or for the state. Um, that becomes your standard because someone has to say what the standard is. It's not directly perceivable. And the other reason I would say we we might not have a different standard is you can't really serve God or the state if you're dead, at least not in this world. So you kind of need to be living to do both of those things. Usually thriving, I mean, I guess you could, you could conjure up a case in which the best way to to serve a benevolent God or put benevolent in quotes for state benevolent state would be to miserably suffer through your life. Um, you know, which even if you accept the existence of a God or the superiority of a state or, or transcendence of a state like Hegel does, it's difficult to prove or disprove that the best way to serve it is to miserably suffer. Um, so I think in that case, we should be pretty wary of the person or the people who are telling you how to interpret the will of God or will of state, because there's a huge potential here for misdirection. Um, so for rational ethics, the standard that we're going to use is life. The reason for that standard is that's why we asked the question in the first place. We want to know how to act, right? What's the goal? Life. Life as a human. That's what we are. We're here on earth. We want to live as a human because we're a human. And we want to live, presumably, or else we wouldn't ask the question. So uh, thanks to the Enlightenment, we also universalize this. Not just our life, but what are the requirements for all humans to live as humans? Not just Carter's life or Greg's life or who else is in chat? I don't know. G-Man's life. But the requirements for life as a human. And we don't just mean survival here, but we mean thriving. And the reason I'm saying that is because thriving takes into account an emotional state where survival doesn't. And there's plenty of cases where people would rather have a, for example, live a shorter period of time and thrive and have a richer life in in a way that they value than living a longer time and having uh, a a life of suffering. Um, And reason is is the means to that end. It's the means, like using reason to figure that out. It's the only properly understood reason is the only means to thriving. It's the only way we can do it is to use reason to figure it out. So if our standard, if now we have a standard, we say, okay, the standard is thriving as a human, universally applied, not just my thriving, thriving as a, what what does a human need as a human to thrive and live as a human? Now we can say, what should I do to thrive? now we have a standard what should a human do to thrive in other words what are the principles of ethics now i'm going to make a simplification here and it's a simplification that i'm pretty sure no one will agree with no philosopher will agree with even the objectivists, the objectivists will hate this i think um no one's gonna like this but i'm gonna do it anyway and there's reason for it um And it is a simplification. I'm going to make a distinction between intrinsic ethical principles and relational ethical principles. Those are, I've just made, I made those categories up, the names. Um, and the reason a lot of, Philosophers won't like this, especially objectivists, they'll say, well, you can universalize these intrinsical ethical principles and you'll get relational principles. There's only one set. That's true, but it's n- it's not super simple to do, I think. Um, and it's, it's difficult to follow. So what I mean by intrinsic principles are inward looking principles. This is what uh, some people in chat were were talking about earlier. Uh, isolation, uh, just being by yourself. Like this, is just, you're the only person in the world, right? Intrinsic principles are are inward-looking principles. These are not in relation to other people, but only in relation to yourself. And these are principles that you can, you can answer questions like, should you lie to yourself? Should you do heroin, right? These things don't directly affect other people. Although if you have anyone else in your life, doing heroin will definitely affect them but it's a it's an indirect effect their primary effect is on you and for these inward principles I actually think there's kind of two classifications here as well um and one are really the the key the key things and these are the universal principles these are what are the principles that that are best for anyone to thrive and this is really the realm of philosophy right not just survival but thriving right as i said longevity could be a part of it, but also there's self-actualization, psychological health. And, and if you start with, if you start with thriving and you, and you look at the requirements for man's survival, again, we're not going to drive this stuff today. It's already late. Um, You're you will end up with something like a dedication to reality being the basis for your universal ethical principles. And you will end up with something like honesty reason, integrity, independence, productivity, justice, like you'll you'll end up with concepts that matter to you, e- even without social relations that will matter to you, that will make your life better. You'll start to see that actually lying to myself ultimately doesn't work, ultimately causes more suffering. N- not acting with integrity ultimately causes more suffering. But these kind of things will map onto relational principles, but as I said, I'm separating them right now um because it's easier to see how these apply to us individually i think it's not always obvious how they map and then there's a set of like personal i'll say subjective principles the principles themselves really aren't subjective but the uh the there, there's an element of subjectivity here and which is what is thriving for me right and these are secondary to the universal principles You you can't can't contradict you can not none of these can are allowed to contradict the universal principles but there is an element of subjectivity here because we're all different and we need to answer questions according to ourselves like how much should i enjoy bad food versus eat healthy and that's really a question of like am i enjoying do i want to have some enjoyment of bad food in my life or do i want to live as long as possible and maximize my uh you know if if i if you said well you know, going out to dinner with this friend and having a glass of wine and pasta and eating a cake—it's going to cost you a day, and your you're like, you're going to die a day earlier. You've got to make a decision about what's more important to you. And I don't think there's a universally applied rule that dictates what that decision should be. That's personal. You know, how much to watch television versus take nature walks, how much to work versus spend time with your kids, whether to have kids, right? Um, and the reason I cite these is that even those are, even though these are subjective. I do think they matter ethically because you can act in a self-destructive way by violating your own standards, even if they're your own subjective standards And these. And again, these subjective standards need to be subordinate to universal standards, right? You can't be like, I subjectively like killing people. That's not how that works. Uh, but, but if you violate them, even though they're subjective, you are being self-destructive, which is immoral insofar as you're choosing death over life. So... A person who dies early because they really wanted to be a food critic and eat as much different food uh, as they wanted, and they really, really hated exercising, and they knew it was going to take years off of their life, but that was a trade-off they wanted to make. You can't really judge them for being immoral or or misbehaving or even being self-destructive if that's truly their standard. Now, that might not truly be their standard. Maybe that's just their rationalization, but you're not in their head. You don't know. Um, so now, so those are like the in the internal the intrinsic principles. Now for relational principles, this is how we relate to other people. It answers the question how do we react interact with with other people? And you know, the enlightenment had a lot of good things to say here, inconsistently. Not everyone in the enlightenment, not on all the stuff, but the enlightenment, you know, one of the answers that popped out of the enlightenment was individual sovereignty individualist ethics right um and this is again ethics based on what are the universal requirements for all humans um and one of the things that pops out of there is voluntary voluntary interactions right um you can you end up with those intrinsic universal principles being mapped over so you end up with rules like don't lie don't steal don't murder those things pop out of this the foundation is the requirements for human life and human thriving what pops out is don't lie, don't steal, don't murder. When you're talking about social interactions, um, so a rational ethics to kind of get back to that first question, like what's what's the basis for the ethics? Life, life is the standard. It's like reason is the basis, reality is the basis. The standard of ethics is life, and 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 it's answering this question: What's required for humans to survive or to thrive rather? As humans, and you apply this universally, right? It's got to be universally applied because we're talking about philosophy. And you arrive at at principles that guide your own actions. Should I inject the heroin or not, right? Um, and you end up with this concept of concept of individual sovereignty, which dictates your relationship with others, which is the ethics of individualism. Again, I said I wasn't going to drive it and I wasn't going to go through all of it. What it is, but that's the foundation. That's the foundation. So let's get back before we end. Let's get back to Saul Alinsky and Taylor Lorenz because they're the subject really of this. (sighs) We saw some of Saul's ethical principles in this book. And we can see some of, of Taylor's based on her behavior. She at least shares some of these. Now maybe she didn't. Maybe she didn't read this, but by virtue of the fact she went to college and is on the left, she, I hundred percent she was influenced by this. Right. Um, now, in light of this, let's just take a moment to consider what's required for a stable society. This is one of the reasons I split intrinsic and relational ethics, even though they're related. We might not agree on intrinsic ethics. Amongst ourselves. We're certainly not going to agree on personal principles. Like you know, whether you should. You know. Have the pasta and eat the cake. And die a day earlier. No, we're not going to agree on that. But even universal intrinsic ethics. Will probably. I mean. Someday it would be nice if we did agree. But we probably aren't going to agree for a while. We might be okay. We might be okay in that case. Society might be able to function. But. What we're experiencing now is a massive disconnect in the principles of relational ethics, not what's good for, you know, whether you should lie to yourself or those kind of intrinsic, but how you should treat other people. What are the relational ethics? And if we don't have shared agreement on foundational relational principles, we will careen into self-destruction and Rome will fall. It's just going to happen. And this reminds me the other day, um, Hockey fans will like this. You guys remember uh, Theo Fleury from the Calgary Flames? He was, by the way, uh, coincidentally, he was a right winger, and he's still a right winger. Um, Now that he's retired, he's still a right winger. Uh, He tweeted out the other day, and he said, sitting here wondering how many people just want to be left alone right now. Wouldn't that be nice? Now, he's misidentifying the problem. I like him, but uh, he's misidentifying the problem. The problem is not that there aren't enough people who want to be left alone. The problem is that there aren't enough people willing to leave other people alone. They might want to be left alone, but they're not going to leave you alone. And more specifically, we have people, a large percentage, willing to operate dishonestly. They are willing to use ethical language as clothing for their actions when, in fact, they do not care about ethics at all. You might think you're having an ethical argument or an ethical discussion. You are not. They are only using that language as clothing. And again, I just want to remind you, this is mainstream. This is not a weird thing. This is not some weird thing. This is mainstream. Ethical language is clothing for many people. Now, I already talked about the abhorrent ethics uh, that I, I noticed in just my my quick inspectional reading of rules for radicals. But there's a couple other things I noticed. Uh and I'm fascinated. I am going to finish this book now because I'm fascinated by what the left has been doing because, by the way, they've been winning. Um, they have a lot of guts in this book. They're they're willing to play not nice. And I don't mean unethical. Obviously, they're willing to do that, too. We, we read examples. Um, but I think the individualists among us, many of whom are in this chat or most of the people in chat and, and watching, um Many of the individuals, many of us are too willing to play nice. We give them the benefit of the doubt. We assume they're acting in good faith. When often there's no good faith at all. And it's a reminder that nice is not a virtue. And this idea of civility presupposes some kind of shared relational ethics. It presupposes good faith. You can't operate with civility if the other side is not operating in good faith. If they are using ethics as clothing, you cannot, you cannot be civil. It doesn't work. You're going to have to choose between civility or victory. That's going to be your choice. Maybe the shit posters are going to end up being our our generals because they understand this. I don't know. So one one takeaway, just in my, my, again, just my inspection reading, one takeaway is they've got some guts. They've got some cojones. They're willing to not be nice. Now, obviously, they're also willing to be unethical, which I don't recommend. The other thing is they, this, he seems to be focusing on organizing, specifically on building organizers. And I think a lot of people who are individualists, we project, I mean, I do this, right? I think to myself, well, I just want to live my life and not care about power. And I kind of assume that other people want to live their lives. These people do not. Power is mentioned a lot just in the one chapter. They care about power. It is a mistake for us to say, I just want to live my life and not care about power. We cannot just live our lives and not care about power. Because there's a gun in the room, and they have an advantage. They've got a head start getting the gun. We don't have the luxury of not caring about power. We don't have to seek it. We don't have to seek power over others, but we do have to undermine. We have to seek to undermine their power. We do need to care about power and we do need to actively undermine their power. And they've got a massive head start on this. And I think the reason that they've got a head start and they are naturally good at this is leftists are busybodies naturally. They enjoy spending energy. Controlling other people—that's just part of their psychology. They want, they like, they love this idea. Someone in chat, Exofathom uh, says they count on our integrity. Yes, and not only do they count on our integrity, they use it against us. They use the good in you against you. That's what they do. I—I I, I don't know if I can think of a more despicable form of evil. They use your good against you. That's what they're doing. And they are explicit. They're explicit. But, you know, we don't naturally, because we're not, you know, individualists don't tend to be busybodies. We don't naturally enjoy spending a lot of energy fighting over power and trying to do this, like sticking our nose in other people's business and getting them, you know, making sure they don't have power over this or that or whatever. We don't, it's not natural to us. We don't do it. We resent having to do it. But I think we need to wake up from the reality that we are surrounded by bad faith actors and it is worth our energy to oppose them. And I think we are losing and make no mistake, we are losing. Um, Individualists are losing. There may be a backlash. There may actually be a backlash from the right, but it's not the individualist right. Just be aware of that. But individualists are losing because we're too naive i may mea culpa on this. Me too, right? They're not playing by the same rules. They're not using the same relational ethics. We cannot share a society with people who won't use the same relational ethics. Certainly, we can't share a society with people who will use ethics as window dressing. You can't share a society with those people. You can't. And, you know, on this, this Taylor, this Taylor person, what's her name? Taylor uh, Lorenz. You know, Tim Poole did a video on Taylor Lorenz the other day. I was, I guess it was yesterday. I don't usually watch Tim Poole. Um, But he did a video on this Taylor Lorenz thing. And he was way too soft on her. Way too soft. He was like, well, she does some good, and she's always responded when I corrected stories, and therefore blah, 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 and, you know, I don't want you know, too many people pile on. and da, 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 da. She just made a mistake. I disagree with her on this, but she's, you know, blah, blah. So what? I don't care that she's responded to Tim Pool. I don't care that she's corrected her stories. What she's doing is Sololinsky refusing to use evidence that someone was gay and pretending that it's noble. It's not a moral decision. It's a tactical decision. When they appear to be moral, when they are saying, oh, yes, sure, I'll correct, I'll do this, it is a tactical decision. It's not ethics. Remember what he said. Remember the way he rejected this. I'm going to go back to this passage because it's super important. The way that he described this, where is it? Maybe it's this page. Now that I said I'm going to go back, I can't find it. Here it is. He said, I don't fight that way. When the guy argued with him, he said, The fact that they fight that way doesn't mean I have to do it. To me, Dragging a person's private life into this muck is loathsome and nauseous. He's playing the moral high ground, but he doesn't mean it. She doesn't mean it. It's a tactical decision. It's a lie. They know that you will respond to ethics, so they use ethical language. They are not ethical. This is not hypocrisy from her. She's not ethical. I mean assuming, I don't know her personally, but assuming she's typical here, she's not ethical. This isn't hypocrisy. She never believed anything she said. She was just using that language as window dressing to to push an agenda. That's all. And I know that's a hard black pill to swallow. But again, this stuff is mainstream. This is a main. Hillary Clinton loves this dude, and she's the she's the milk toast Democrat. She's not a she's not a radical leftist. I mean, she's horrible. Don't get me wrong. I don't have any love for Hillary, but you know, Democratic nominee for president. She's this is she's not the crazy one that they're ostracizing. She's the normie. Now, look, there's no need to form a cancel mob uh, and go after these people. I I don't think that you should do that, but. They do need to be dismissed. They do need to be dismissed. And if we view this uh, in terms of psychological disorders, I saw someone early in the chat ask what Josh Slocum would think of Taylor Lorenz. I don't know. Uh, but he does have, uh, um, he's very adept at detecting uh, psychological dysfunction and personality disorders, and he probably would notice stuff. I'm, I'm pretty bad at it. Um, so he, he might notice something there. Uh, but we are living in a, in an environment in which the pandemic isn't COVID, it's cluster B. That's the pandemic. And with many psychological disorders, the only effective strategy is to disengage. Lesson that sometimes is harder to learn than others, but Disengaging is the only thing that works. We need to disengage from Taylor. And from all these people, we need to disengage. We need to ignore them, dismiss them, disengage. Now I'm doing a whole show talking about her, so maybe I'm not, you know. But I think we need to disengage from them. I think that's the only way. And maybe the next question that we should ask ourselves is, How do we herd cats? How do we herd these individualists like us? We're notoriously horrible to get to organize and do anything. How do we mobilize individualists against the collectivists with the same effectiveness as Saul Alinsky was able to do? Because our principles should not be our liabilities. They should be our assets. But if we don't stand by them, they're not going to count for much. So maybe we should start thinking about this problem in future episodes, how to herd cats. I don't know. I don't know, guys. But it's something we should explore. Because I am not in the mood to let this go. I'm not, look, I know Rome is falling. (sighs) Maybe it'll fall on my watch, but I am, I'm going to at least hold part of the castle. There's no way that we can just let this happen. And we're not fighting We're not organized. We're not fighting. We're giving them credibility. We're treating them as if we're treating them civilly. We're treating as if they are operating operating in good faith. They are not. They are not. And it's time we woke up. No, I don't know. I don't, again, I don't know how to do it other than I'm going to throw this out. Maybe you guys will have ideas. Maybe we'll come up with something. Maybe it'll take years, but we'll come up with something. I don't know. But we need to see it for what it is. I think Greg the Baritone says, Carter, when Michael Mallis was on Tim Pool a couple Fridays ago, he dressed like Tim Pool and had in front of him a glass of milk and a plate with toast. I I like I like Tim Pool. I like Tim or not Tim Pool, Michael Malice. Tim Pool is foreign, whatever. I like Michael Malice. Um <laughs> Richard Betts says, I'm cheering on your elephant. Yeah, I mean, uh, look, I, I don't think that uh, I don't think that elephant rampaged anywhere that my reasoning mind didn't want it to. Um, just because you express emotion doesn't mean, you know, the spur of emotion wasn't driven by reason. It was. I reasoned these arguments out, and I'm passionate about them. Um, so I don't think I'm being driven. I could be. You can correct me. Um, but don't make the mistake of thinking that because someone's passionate, they're necessarily driven in that moment by uh, by emotions. Um, they might be, and often they probably are, so maybe it's a good rule of thumb. Um, all right. Thank you all for watching. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for sticking around. This was a long show. It was almost two hours. I know, by the way, I know I need to update the end credits. I apologize if your name is not there and it should be. I will update them. I've been busy. I know it needs to happen. Um, but an enormous thank you to those of you who uh, do support Unsafe Space financially, which gets your name in the end credits. Um, you can uh, you can join them if you want by going to space.com. Like I said, you get your name in the end credits eventually. Uh, and you continue discussions like this in, in Discord, on our Discord server. And as always, I do love topic suggestions, feedback, ideas, etc. Tomorrow, Beverly doesn't know this, but tomorrow we are going to release an episode uh, of Free Association uh, with a friend of mine named Michael Tedesco, in which we talk about Elon Musk's bid for Twitter. And the reason we're talking about it is not to do a lot of speculation, but just to set the record straight on some things. Michael is um, Michael is an expert at, at mergers and acquisitions in the tech space. He's, he's done it for years. He's... He did the compact HP merger. He did Oracle PeopleSoft merger. He's a badass. Um, And I said something on Twitter and he was like, no, Carter, this is my wheelhouse. And he schooled me and he wants to school everyone else on, on, you know, what the options are, what the likely outcome is, what the rules are, you know, and and what's really going on here with Elon. So that will be tomorrow. I don't even know what time. We're going to pop it out. Uh, And on Friday, we have token minority report with uh with beverly and some intern so thanks everyone for watching have a good night and uh we'll see you later thanks for sticking around until the end if you're new to unsafe space check out our deep content library that includes discussions with everyone from james Lindsay to brett weinstein And please consider helping to fund our work by visiting unsafespace.com slash donate. You can find us on a variety of social media platforms, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space Discord server, which is open to financial supporters at any level. We hope to see you there.
1: Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production may corrupt previous psychological programming. If you encounter any of the following individuals, please administer government-issued neurotoxin immediately. I'm not sure what the neurotoxin will do because I am not a biologist. CRT is a complex legal theory that is needed to combat the epidemic of racist babies. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't think about it, I mean, that's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science.